If you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews, as we've been talking about, is written to Hebrew Christians in the first century, those that had Hebrew heritage, Jewish upbringing, Jewish culture, Jewish family, Jewish all of that, Jewish worship, and, um, and they became Christians. And uh, they received Jesus. And, you know, Jesus is in many ways the fulfillment of the Old Testament Judaism. Uh, Jesus said, I had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And uh, all that goes into that. But there was a tendency for those folks to revert back to Judaism, to, to receive Jesus and the Old Testament law, receive Jesus and circumcision, receive Jesus and act like it, you know, you got to adhere to all the dietary laws and all that kind of stuff. And, there's, and, and it's a picture for us, because we've talked about this, we're not necessarily Jewish by heritage, but it's a picture of us how we tend to be religious in our nature. We tend to... Um, so often, even as Christians, as, as sort of Gentile Christians, we tend to place a lot of security in the fact that, you know, I come to church, I'm here, I'm, I'm trying to be a good Christian, I'm trying to do all the right things, I'm trying to, you know, learn the, learn the handshake, if you will, learn the, how, how we do things here, and, you know, read the Bible, and there's just, there's just a lot into it, honestly. But at the core, we're talking about a relationship with God, that was broken by our sin and was restored by Jesus, period. And that God has done everything we need. First, uh, Second Peter, I believe, it, chapter 1, says God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. The point of the book of Hebrews and the point of so often of what we talk about here is that God has done all the work. Now, that leaves us with one of two conclusions. Number one, we accept that or reject it. Number two, if we accept it, then what does that do for us? If God has done all the work, we can either say, cool, it's all done. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or, we respond with a life that fits an appropriate response to the fact that Jesus died on a cross for me, that God saved me, that God gave me His Holy Spirit to walk this Christian life, and all I get to do is in response to that as a life of thanksgiving. And obviously that's where we want to lean, right? And so we're leaning that way. And so uh, as he's working through here, he's talking about the whole theme of this book is that Jesus is so much better than the Old Testament system. Well, if we say Jesus is so much better than the Old Testament system, we have to spend some time a little bit unpacking the Old Testament system and then demonstrate that Jesus is better. And so that's kind of what he's been doing, right? So all along we've been talking about Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is better than the angels who they highly regarded. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the law. All of these things. And Jesus' priesthood is better than the priesthood according to Aaron, which was, you know, their part of their law. And today we move forward to the sanctuary that Jesus brings us into is better than the sanctuary that they used. Okay? Now you think, wait a minute, sanctuary, what is, 
Jesus sanctuary. So now we're talking about sort of a heavenly sanctuary, if you will. And so keep in mind this also. The Old Testament has lots, tons of examples of like Old Testament truths that point to a New Testament reality. And there's lots, even in the, in the New Testament, there's, there are pictures, right? Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that uh, the relationship of a husband and a wife is like the relationship of what? Christ and the church. And we have greater insight into Christ and the church by understanding a biblical relationship of a husband and a wife. And on the other hand, we have a better understanding how to navigate marriage by understanding the parallel, that it's a parallel of, of Christ and the church. And so there's lots of those kinds of examples. Why you got, did everybody find Hebrews chapter 9? All right, while you're there, stick your finger there. Turn back to the left, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1. Paul's writing the, to the uh, church in Corinth here, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant, uh, to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. Now he's talking about the Jewish people as they were uh, in the wilderness, uh, com or coming out of Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land. He said, All passed through the sea, that was the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank that of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not, I'm sorry, and do not become idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them did, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things, notice this, all these things happened to them, to the Old Testament Jews, as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so what Paul is telling the church at Corinth, you know, there were lots of things that the Old Testament Jews went through, and there were lots of pictures and lots of lessons that God gave them, and they point us to a, a truth that helps us better understand. Fair enough? And so he's saying, like, for example, you know, there were uh, these biblical pictures that were kind of a part of a, of a of a truth we see. When they came through the Red Sea, right? Remember the Red Sea parted and they sort of came through the Red Sea? That's a picture of baptism, he says. They were under the cloud. That's a picture of baptism. They ate the same spiritual food. Remember the manna, right? And remember even Jesus finished out that, that sort of, he said, man does not eat by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the manna is a type of spiritual food. What are we doing today? We're eating spiritual food. What did we read about a couple weeks ago? He said, you guys um, are only able to, eat, to drink milk. You should be able to eat solid food. What's he talking about? Is he talking about literal steak? No, he's talking about the Word of God, right? And so there's all these pictures that we see that point us to a greater truth. And so um, today we see another parallel. 
And that is, you can flip back to Hebrews again. That is the parallel of the Old Testament sacrifice in the Old Testament sanctuary versus Jesus' sacrifice in the heavenly sanctuary. Does that make sense? So when, God, when, the, when the Jews came out of, uh, out of Egypt, they wind up in the, in the desert, they're hanging out there, God gives them on Mount Sinai the law, right? Not only the Ten Commandments, but with that, you know, all the other restrictions and all of that that just seems to go on forever. And a lot of it was uh, a description of the tabernacle that they were to make, right? And God gave them very, right? Yeah. And God gave them very specific instructions for that tabernacle. And as you know, it was, it was sort of a big portable tent that served as their sanctuary, and they carried that wherever they went along the desert. And then when they came into the promised land, finally, uh, you know, they brought the tabernacle in. And then later on, we know that Solomon built a temple that was sort of modeled after that tabernacle. And then that was destroyed. And then later in history, the, the group of exiles coming back from Babylon built another one. And later on, even Herod um, sort of uh, expounded upon the other one, right? And remember when Jesus, uh, when Jesus and his disciples are coming out of the temple and they said, wow, look at that amazing temple, right? And that was the one that really was started by those captives that came out of Babylon and was enhanced by Herod. I read somewhere, I forget, uh, took him 46 years to do that. Now, here's what i got to say. Herod, King Herod, Herod the Great is involved in building this big temple thing, okay? And so sometimes we can get so like our religious system, right? We have a deal here. We have a, we have a sort of a thing we do here, right? Everybody understand this? You come in. I've said it before. You, you sit in the same seats where, uh, where you normally sit, right? Uh, I won't embarrass anybody, but we had a guy come in here today, and he said, yeah, I'm a friend of so-and-so. And I was, I was able to say, well, tell you what, he sits, and I, I'm not going to point at anybody, but I was like, he sits in that row, and he's not here yet. So he's like, okay, cool, right? We all have our seats, right? We all have our way we do things. We all have our time that we show up, right? We all have the whole thing. It's part of our worship experience, right? And even Herod, I don't think he was a believer, found it in himself to be involved in this process. So sometimes we need to tease out the relationship we have with Jesus from the religious system and even the worship experience. Does that make sense? Is it possible to come in and out of here and never be touched by God? Totally. Totally. And so we don't want to do that. So God gives us these pictures. Uh, he gives us, uh, today we'll talk about this uh, Old Testament tabernacle. I like um, what Warren Wearsby says. He says, the Christian is a citizen of two worlds, the earthly and the heavenly. Right? Think about that. In a sense, yeah, I'm an American. I live in southern Indiana. I kind of have my, my routine. Got a pretty good idea of what tomorrow is going to look like, sort of. Right? But I also have this, this reality that I'm just passing through. And some days... The reality of where I'm going feels more tangible. And some days, it gets clouded out by the stuff of earth, as the old song goes. Right? 
And so we live in these two realities. We're, we're sort of dual citizens, if you will, the earthly and the heavenly. He says, practically, practical man says, seeing is believing. But the man of faith says, believing is seeing. So, that's Warren Wearsby. I like that. So, uh, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. And so, again, you know, there were no chapter breaks in the original letters, and so basically he's carrying on this idea that he wrapped up in chapter 8, and that was that uh, if you look starting at verse 8, verse 7, Basically, he's talking about the first covenant, the Old Testament covenant, and the new covenant, right? And he's, he's describing, he's, pro, he's reading a prophecy from Jeremiah that says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Notice who's doing all the work here. I will, he says. I will make this covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what's becoming obsolete and growing old is, is ready to vanish away. And so what he's talking about here is uh, that, the, that the old covenant is, is becoming obsolete. But we have to understand that to know what, what the new covenant is, to know this new covenant, Jesus, is better than the old covenant. And so that's why he's going back and forth here. So why do we study the first covenant? Because, number one, the writer of Hebrews says we should. Number two, Paul, uh, speaking to the Corinthians, uh, says we should. And so it helps us understand the depth of the, of the new covenant. So he starts by telling us that the first covenant had its worship exercise in an earthly sanctuary. And uh, there was that earthly sanctuary. And the earthly sanctuary was intentional. It was, it was built uh, with a purpose and with a design accordingly. So he says, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And so the tabernacle had two areas, well, it really had three areas. Had the outer court, okay, and the outer court was the area where they would sacrifice animals, okay? And then in the sort of the tabernacle itself, there was the holy place, and then with a, separated by a veil, there was the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And so, as, as you walked into the holy place, only the priest could go into the holy place. Only the high priest, and only once a year, could go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And so, uh, the idea here is, in the, in the holy place, when you first walked in, uh, on the left there was a lampstand. And it was fueled by oil. And again, if we're looking at Old Testament pictures that point to a New Testament reality, keep in mind, you got a, you got a curtained, a big curtained room, right? There's no light in that room except for that lamp, the menorah that was on the left as you walk in, right? Jesus said, what are we? Light of the world, right? What fuels that light? 
Electricity, batteries, oil, right? Oil fueled that light. Oil in our lives today is a picture of the Holy Spirit, right? So where do we get our fuel? By the Holy Spirit. You ever tried to manufacture your own fuel in your own lives? How's that work? Not very good. Your batteries run out, right? Oh, you can do it for a little while. You can fake it. Fake it till you make it. Well, you don't make it, right? Fake it till you burn out, till your battery dies. And again, that's sort of that's the religion that we're talking about. But the Holy Spirit lights the candle. Or the oil lights the candle. The Holy Spirit keeps us going. The Holy Spirit is who empowers us to live this Christian life. So again, we've, as we've said many times before, we have the Word of God that guides us. We have the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live according to the Word. Simple as that. Okay? And so, on the left side, there was a lampstand. It was the source of light. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. On the right side was the showbread for the priest. And again, this is a picture of Jesus as the bread of life. All right? So he moves on, verse 3. He says, and behind the second veil, so you're in the first room is the holy place, the, the second room is the holy of holies, and so that's the second veil. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or elsewhere called the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on it on, on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we, shall not, we cannot now speak in detail. To which many of you are saying, good. Right? But we'll talk briefly. Okay? And so, uh, inside the Holy of Holies, was, it, what he's saying here is the incense altar. Now, in the original uh, description that God gave to Moses... The incense altar was to be just outside the veil. And so different people have different takes on what this means. Maybe by this time, uh, you know, by the time of the first century, the incense altar had gotten moved into the Holy of Holies. Nobody knows for sure. Maybe he's talking about the incense was prepared just outside the veil and taken into the Holy of Holies, which the high priest would have done on the Day of Atonement. Uh, but anyway, um, just if you see that, that's, that's what that's about. But the... the Ark of the Covenant contained some manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the Ten Commandments, right? And the lid of the Ark was called the Mercy Seat. And if you've seen various pictures, there's pictures on the <clears throat> in there's a picture in the um, the the kids' notes or the adult kids' notes that are on the back, there's a picture, and usually how it's depicted is, is, it says there's two cherubim that their wings touch each other, like they're facing each other and their wings touch each other, and that sort of overrides the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you've got to keep in mind, God is everywhere, right? God is omnipresent, right? Okay. But God wanted to make it clear that the Ark of the Covenant sort of represented, if you will, the presence of God. Okay, because why? Because God wanted us to have these pictures. God gives us all these pictures so we can kind of see His, His, His goodness. It helps us see things we don't always understand. Just parenthetically, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
tells us about life and death a little bit. I love this in the context of trying to get our heads around death and heaven and all this kind of stuff. And I always love this. Paul says, you know, a seed doesn't do what it's meant to do really until it dies. Right? And you think about that. And, I, and I've reflected on this in the context of funerals and stuff before and, and um, those that have lost loved ones and, and all of that. We speculate an awful lot about heaven. Do we not? You know, we talk about there's going to be chocolate there and, you know, you can play basketball and not get tired. I'll be able to slam dunk. Okay. But... You know, there's, there's all, we speculate on that because we really, we have no idea. And sometimes if we're, you know, I can joke about chocolate and basketball, but if we, get, if we try to get serious about it, we're on slippery ground, right? And I always think of it like, if you took, a, if you took an acorn, let's say an acorn was, you know, had enough, like, you could talk to the acorn, right? There's medicine for that, Right? <laughs> But let's say you could talk to the acorn. And you tried to explain to, acorn, to the acorn what shade is like. What would he say? Huh? He would say like a lot of what you guys say when I'm teaching the Bible. Huh? Right? Or if you explain to a caterpillar what flight is like, It'll say, huh? And the best it can do is just very loosely speculate what you're talking about. And there's lots of times where I think we, we, we're probably good to say, you know what, heaven's going to be awesome. It's going to be better than what I can imagine. We get a glimpse of it when Paul says, you know, I was, uh, had sort of a near-death experience and got caught up into the third heaven, and I can't even describe it. It's too wonderful to try to describe so we, ex- we accept that, right? And so there's all these pictures. And so, again, just getting back to it, this is the picture of what was in the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God. And so the Jewish people were, were very mindful to regard that with intense respect because it was so holy. Now, many of you know, the, know, the, the, you know the lessons from that. When the high priest went in to that Holy of Holies, there was such a regard for, the, for how that represented the presence of God and the holiness of God, and how can any of us ever stand in the presence of the holiness of God, and they, they realized how intense that was, right? Then the priest would have sort of bells around his ankles, and they had a rope tied around his feet, Right? And if, you know, when he goes in there, you know, I made a joke about, you know, being constantly moving like Nate does. Well, the priest would have done that, right? Because when they stop hearing the bells ring, they might have thought, he's dead. Who wants to go in and get him? Nobody's going in and get him, right? So they pull him out with a rope, right? They had that kind of, de- of respect for, the, for the, uh, the Ark of God. The other side of that is, uh, some of you know the story in 1 Samuel, There's those first few chapters of Samuel, uh, the Philistines captured the Ark of God, right? 
And remember, they took it to their place, and everywhere, everywhere they, you know, it's like a hot potato. Every time, everywhere they put that ark of God, bad things happened to the Philistine people. And then they'd move it to over here, and finally they said, "We got to get rid of this thing, right?" And so they put it on a cart, and they uh, have two cows uh, carry it off. And they said, if the cows go this way, two cows that had recently birthed calves, and if the cows just go that way without saying, "Hey, where's my calf?" then we know this is a miracle of God and that we're going to just going to see where it goes. And it, sure enough, the, the cows carried the ark uh, on the cart uh, back to Jewish territory at the area of Beth Shemesh. And the Jewish folks at Beth Shemesh, right, many of you know the story, they said, wow, this is cool. We got our ark back. Let's lift the lid off and see what's inside. Do you do that? No. I think 50,000 of them died that day. Now that speaks to me when I describe, like, when I think about the presence of God. Do I have that high of respect for the presence of God that I should? Right? You've heard me say before, I don't like to call him the man upstairs, right? Right? He's not the man upstairs. He's God. He's God. And as best as we can get our heads around... You know, we're a lot like the acorn, right, that can't understand shade. But as best as we can get our heads around, he has chosen to reveal himself to us. He's given us the, the template by which we understand who he is and his nature and everything about him, right? And so that's why we have the, the respect that we have for his word and for who he is and his presence and all of that. And so the high priest would go in once a year into the Holy of Holies and uh, then he would offer sacrifices. The other thing that's interesting um, is that when he went in, he would go in with the blood from the animal sacrifice that they had out in the outer courtyard. Okay? And so when he would go in to the Holy of Holies, he would sprinkle blood on the top of that mercy seat. And so what a lot of commentators say, it's a picture of you know when God looks down from heaven, right? he sees the law that's sort of inside that ark. He sees man-made... Uh, efforts at religion, and instead of really what, you know, between, between him and seeing that is the mercy seat with the blood over it. And so based on the blood, right, the blood signifies the remission of sin, right? The mercy seat, the mercy for sin, over, overtakes man's efforts to be, religion, to be religious. And so you can take these metaphors Honestly, as far as you want, right? And commentators have done that. But, but we see that this is God's idea, that the, that the ark is in the Holy of Holies. He says now, verse 6, When these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone only once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And so there's a thing where we can sin in ignorance without realizing even that we're sinning. And so the, that was covered, right? So the priest went into the first part uh, for all the various sacrifices and, and, and ceremony, but into the second part only the high priest went once a, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And at that time he offered blood for himself and for the people. Notice also that the Holy of Holies i.e. the presence of God, was not accessible to everybody, right? 
So what do we have in religious systems a lot of times? We have a hierarchy of accessibility of God to the people. Is that how it's supposed to be? No. So what, do we, what, what happened the day Jesus died, right? The veil was torn from top to bottom, right? And the presence of God is available to everybody. You don't have to have a, a seminary degree to experience the presence of God. You don't have to be some, at some point in the hierarchy to experience the presence of God. You've heard me say a million times before, and I got in a conversation this week with somebody about it. I forget what it was. He's talking about somebody's going into the ministry, right? And I, or somebody's out of the ministry, he's thinking about going into the ministry or into or out of the ministry. And what would I say to that, anybody that's been here for more than two minutes, right? Are you all in the ministry? Am I in the ministry? Am I in the ministry more than you're in the ministry? No. Are you in full-time ministry or part-time ministry? Full-time ministry. Who's in full-time ministry? Everybody, this is like responsive reading from when I was a religious child, right? It's awesome. Uh, So uh, who's in full-time ministry? Everybody who calls themselves a Christian, right? When I go to my office tomorrow, I'd like to think I'm going to be engaged in ministry, right? When I go home this afternoon and hang out with my family, I'd like to think I'm going to be involved in ministry, right? And there's no like sacred, secular distinction like we tend to do it as religious people, right? And so the idea here is uh, when the veil was torn in two, God's presence was accessible to everybody, and that's a better picture of what God intends for us. He goes on, verse 8, he says, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, the Holy of Holies, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. And so that is now made manifest. And so the idea was, in the Old Testament tabernacle, there was an idea uh, that was demonstrated by that veil that you know that was not as good as the new covenant that Jesus establishes, and now we have accessibility to uh, the presence of God. It was symbolic, he says, verse 9, for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot, be made, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. Uh, time of Reformation. And so, I think it's important here that he clearly states the Old Testament tabernacle was symbolic. And why was it symbolic? Because it was, only, it, it was only dealing with external things. Foods, drinks, washings, fleshly ordinances. Now, we don't have a dietary law. Well, in my house we do. But as Christians, we don't have a dietary law, right? Right? You can eat whatever you want. If you want to eat pork, you can eat pork. If you want to eat pork on any day of the week, you can eat pork on any day of the week, Right? According to Scripture, you can eat whatever you want. We don't have dietary laws. We don't have symbolic washings or, in a sense, fleshly ordinances that are prescribed in the Old Testament law. But do we have some of these fleshly ordinances as Christians? Right? Are you supposed to come to church? Uh Uh-huh. Are you supposed to pray? Uh huh. Are you supposed to read your Bible? Uh huh. 
Are you supposed to give money to the church? Mm-hmm. We're getting there, aren't we? Are you supposed to like stop cussing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just trying to reach all ages. Right? I mean, we have these things that we as Christians are supposed to do and we have these things that we're not supposed to do. Fair enough? But we have to, I think it's very important, and it seems like we're reinventing the wheel a little bit. I get it. But I think we always have to be on this lifelong journey of taking our brain back to why? 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 Because I'm trying to get to some level? Because I'm trying to be a good person? I'm trying to uh, please God. I'm trying to earn favor with God. I'm trying to earn favor with my Christian friends. Right? Am I trying to do all that? Or am I just simply responding by saying thanks to God? I know I've said it a million times. I'll probably keep saying it the rest of my life. It is critical that we do the latter and not the former. And you've heard me say before, if you were here when we went through the book of Ephesians, what's the most important word in the book of Ephesians? Anybody? Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore. Therefore. Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 is all about the goodness of God. It's my favorite book in the Bible. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 God is good. God has blessed you beyond what you can imagine. God has blessed you above and beyond all you can ask or think. God, you are seated in heavenly places with Christ. You were once dead, but now you've been made alive. All of this, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. Therefore, live accordingly. Therefore, walk accordingly. Live accordingly. Have a marriage accordingly. Fight spiritual warfare, chapter 6, accordingly. Not to earn anything, but in response to. And so that's the whole point of really the, well, the Bible, but also the book of Hebrews, and also of these pictures that we have. So, we don't worry about fleshly ordinances. We know that these things were symbolic for what would come, he says, for the present time, which now applies to us as well. And that God deals with our, look here, verse 9, in regard to the conscience. God deals with our conscience rather than just the externals. You know, throughout the Old Testament, there was a picture of what would later be fulfilled by Jesus who was better. And really, the picture is how we deal with sin, right? And really, if you think about it, it's, it's so consistent throughout the whole Scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Right? Adam and Eve sinned. Fair enough? Everybody with me on that? Adam and Eve sinned. Genesis chapter 3. Before that, they were what? You can't even say it out loud because you're ashamed. Right? They were what? They were naked and not ashamed. Right? So we kind of blush even talking about that. Right? Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. There was like no weirdness. Imagine a world with no weirdness. They had no weirdness. And then they sinned. 
And now all of a sudden they have an awareness of their nakedness. They had an awareness of their weirdness. Now they're trying to figure out whose fault it is. And there's all this kind of... Now there's drama, right? Everybody understand drama? There's drama. And so they have a sin problem. So they got to deal with their sin problem. There's something inherent in human beings that we first recognize we're sinners, and then we and then we go then we go into this mode of I got to deal with that sin somehow because we can't we can't handle. There's it's like I think it's the way God designed us, frankly, to seek Him, but we sometimes recircuit that a little bit by like I got to deal with my sin problem. So here's what I'll do: I'll find fig leaves and cover myself up with fig leaves, right? Is that what they did? It's totally what they did, right? That's the first religion in the Bible, fig leaves, right? And the same theme carries all the way through. God deals with the fig leaves. God says, no, fig leaves won't work. And so what does God do? God kills an animal to give them animal skins to now cover up their nakedness, right? So that's a better picture it's not as good as Jesus, but it's better than the fig leaves. And it points to Jesus, right? Was the animal innocent or guilty? It was innocent because we know that it wasn't a raccoon. <laughs> Raccoons would not cover up the human body, right? If they'd used raccoons, my kids tease me because I don't like raccoons and they think they're cute and I think they're, they're cute, but. But anyway, so if it had been a raccoon we would have a theological challenge on our hands. But we'll just say it was something much more tame and lovable than a raccoon like a, a bear or a mountain lion. Okay? Something like that. And so, God kills that innocent animal so Adam and Eve can cover their sin. Is that better than fig leaves? Yes, that's better than fig leaves. Who, and, what, and what had to be shed in order to provide that skin? Blood. What kind of blood? Innocent blood. Is that where the lesson stops? No. That lesson points to something even better. And throughout the Old Testament system, we see the idea of sin is covered. My sin is covered. My sin is covered. Right? In Jesus, our sin is removed. There's an eternal difference between our sin being covered and our sin being removed. And I don't know about you, but I remember a lot of years where I was trying to cover my sin. I had an awareness of it, and I tried to cover it. And with good intentions, and we all do that. We're all on this journey, right? So I'm not, you know, whatever. We're all on this journey. But we've got to understand the difference between covering sin and removing our sin. Now we can read, word, and this is why we study the Old Testament, because I want to know the difference. Now when I read something like, and, my, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now that makes sense to me. Because I understand the difference between my sin being removed and my sin being covered. Does God have a memory problem? Does God know everything? Yes, He knows everything. But He chooses, 
He chooses to remember no more our sin that's been removed. Our sin that's been covered by some man-made effort, he knows it's been covered by some man-made effort, right? And so the idea, you got the fig leaves, that point that, you know, that's replaced by the animal skin, and that points to the idea that Jesus sacrifices so much better. So much better. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us, not just cover us, but to cleanse us from not most unrighteousness, but all unrighteousness. And that's the kind of cleansing we need through Jesus. And it's, I think it's a subtle distinction, but I think it's possible. I think it's possible to sit in church all your life and never have your sin removed. Because we can get so comfortable in our Christian gig. We can get so comfortable in our Christian music, in our Christian thing, that we're, we feel like we have successfully covered our sin. But there's a huge, huge difference between covering our sin and having our sin removed. We cannot remove our sin. There is nothing we can do to remove our sin. Only Jesus does it. Verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. So, you know, the Jewish people had their high priest. He could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. That's sort of a picture, yeah, but let's, let's hear what's better. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And so this is a greater ta- tabernacle, a greater sanctuary, uh, is what Jesus' sacrifice did in heaven. Again, it's better because it's not made with human hands. So the idea here, the picture that he's painting is, the Old Testament tabernacle points us to Jesus' sacrifice that happens in heaven on our behalf. And so Jesus is, again, it's a little bit out of our brains, but it's a, it's a, better, a greater and more perfect tabernacle, and it's not made with hands. That is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So how many times did the high priest go into the Holy of Holies? Once a year. How many times did Jesus go into the Holy of Holies in the more perfect tabernacle in heaven? Once and for all. Into the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats, of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience... Not just the purifying of the flesh, but cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions made under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So, rather than just purifying of the flesh, which the Old Testament system sort of covered, if you will, we now have cleansing of our conscience, cleansing within. 
through Jesus Christ. And look at this in verse 14. To serve the living God. What's the purpose of a cleansed conscience? So we can serve the living God freely. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're not trying to impress God. We're not trying to impress each other. i got to tell you, we have this, uh, well, this book came into our house. I didn't endorse it or approve it. Um, but it's entitled, How to Be a Perfect Christian. Right? It's a satire, right? And I can't read it to you because it's, there's so much of it that's so real that we're like, really? You know? And so it, it really, in my mind, it highlights how much religious stuff our life entails, right? And, you know, you see a movie about it every once in a while, right? Like, you know, people doing these, you know, trying to fake be a, being a Christian. It makes us look kind of funny. I mean, if you think about it. But, so don't fake it, right? God wants to cleanse us from the inside. And he's the mediator of a new covenant. So, verse 18 I'm sorry, verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So he's going to now just kind of fill in some details. That's the idea. He's going to fill in some details now. There must, for where there's a testament, there must be a death of a testator. For the testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So he gets into some legal terms now, right? So I'm not a lawyer, okay? Any lawyers in the room? Good, so we can talk like we know what we're talking about. So, I'm not a lawyer, because I never wanted to wear those suits and ties all the time. It'd be, be so restricting. I wouldn't have the freedom to know whether to wear the blue sweater or the black sweater, right? So, I didn't become a lawyer. But the legal terms, like there's a will, right? Like, you write a will, right? If I write a will, this is what I want to have happen, when does that will take place? Or when does that will take effect? Let me put it that way. When I die. And until I die, the will doesn't have any legal bearing. Right? And so here he's just kind of giving us another example just to sort of fill in a gap. You know, here you've got a situation where Jesus sort of wrote the will and he's the executor of the will because he himself died. Okay? So he's the author and the executor of the will. And so he does, all the, he does all the work to make it happen. Verse 19, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So you see here, this verse, uh, verse 20, where he says, Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. That's a direct quote from uh, Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. Does that phraseology sound familiar to anybody? Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. What did Jesus say at the Last Supper? This is my blood of the what? New covenant, which is what? Shed for you. So even the wording here, uh, Jesus' wording as, as opposed to Moses' wording, signifies 
that Jesus' blood is the blood of the new covenant, and uh, it's the blood that, he says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So it was Jesus' blood that takes away our sins, period. Nothing religious takes away our sin. Jesus' blood takes away our sin, as far as the east is from the west. Verse 24, therefore, I'm sorry, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So, there's a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. That is the tabernacle that was prescribed to Moses. That was later the uh, temple of Solomon and then beyond. And so, uh, that was a copy of the sanctuary in heaven. And the sacrifices were copies of the greater sacrifice, and that is Jesus himself. For Christ has not entered the holy place, places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So we talked about this last week. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the heavens. Chapter 8, verse 1 of Hebrews. Jesus is seated, and again, to reiterate last week, He's seated, he's not pacing. He's not biting his fingernails. He's not scratching his head. He's not trying to come up with, what are we going to do now because Scott Murphy's a bonehead, right? What do we, there's no, there's no what, what do we do now? It's, he is seated. The work is done. Where is he seated? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, right? And I, I picture this again, you know, I said earlier, we can't really picture heaven uh, it, with any clarity, but I, at least with me, it helps me understand it. When I, when I think of he's seated at the right hand of God, it's like he's whispering into God's right ear on my behalf. Not because of anything good about me, but because of everything good about him. Right? And he's seated at the right hand of God in the heavens. In the heavens. What do we know about the heavens? They're above everything on earth. And just for the sake of repetition... The heavens are above everything on earth. That means the heavens are above physical issues. The heavens are above financial issues. The heavens are above marriage and relationship issues. The heavens are above anything. The heavens are above worldwide tension. The heavens are above all of those things, right? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the heavens. In somehow that we don't understand, the heavenly sanctuary. So it's a beautiful picture that he paints for us. Not that he should offer, verse 28, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year without, with the blood of another. So again, the high priest had to go in every year. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so, as he wraps up here, we see he says, uh, you know, he, not only is he seated at the right hand of God, there's no more work to do. He doesn't have to be sacrificed more than once. 
that was enough. You know, even as if you look at Old Testament pictures and all that kind of stuff. Remember, remember the uh, first time the people in the desert, the Old Testament Jews, they complained to Moses about being thirsty, right? And God said what? Strike the rock and water's going to come out. Did that happen? Did that happen? Yeah, it happened. Right. And then they complained and got, they were thirsty again. They complained again, right? Remember the story? God says, what did God say the second time? Speak to the rock. Don't strike the rock. Speak to the rock. Right? And Moses gets frustrated because they're complaining. Understandably so, but God held him accountable. God, what did Moses do? Did he speak to the rock? No, he struck the rock a second time. What did 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tell us when we read about in the beginning? Remember all those people he said came under the cloud, all came through the sea, all were baptized into the Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank the same, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The rock in the desert was a picture of Jesus. God wanted to paint a picture to the Jewish people that the rock is a picture of Jesus, right? And water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Moses struck the rock the first time when God told him to by the striking of Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus, by the death of Jesus. We have access to the Holy Spirit, right? How many times did Jesus have to die? Once. When Moses struck the rock the second time, he messed up God's metaphor. Right? Now, do you ever read that story and say, you know, God seemed kind of harsh with Moses on that one. Didn't let him go into the promised land because he struck the rock instead of spoke to the rock? Well, it's because Moses messed up God's metaphor. Right? The rock, Corinthians tells us, was Christ. And so God gives us all these pictures that we see throughout the Scripture, right? We need, to not, we need to understand them for what they are, right? It was very important that Jesus died once. What does that do for reincarnation? Pretty much takes care of that, doesn't it? Yeah, it pretty much takes care of reincarnation. So Jesus died once, and it was very important that that was communicated. And when Moses struck the rock, that was, uh, that was not good. So for us, Christ was offered to bear, once to bear the sins of many, including us, and to those who eagerly wait for Him, that be us, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so He came the first time to uh, die for our sin. He's coming back a second time to set up his, his millennial kingdom, take us to heaven forever, the whole bit, right? That we've talked about in the prophetic books, right? So he is going to come back a second time. And you know, today is closer than yesterday was, right? Can he come back to, can he come back before the sun goes down tonight? You bet he can. Can I tell you this? Just I'm, I'm wrapping up. Ezekiel chapter 38 
Nate is like a caged animal wanting to talk about this, so it's going to come up. Um, Ezekiel chapter 38, we talked about it when we went through Ezekiel, <clears throat> talks about a coalition of Russia and Iran and some other uh, sort of radical Muslim nations coming against the nation of Israel. And God is going to be on the side of Israel, and Israel's going to win. I had a lady in my office this week, literally crying. Crying because the whole world's coming against Israel. She's a Christian, but frankly, she's not, she doesn't know the whole Bible. So she's flipping out. Right? Because the whole nation is coming against Israel. It looks like God's might not be on the winning side. Is God on the winning side? Yeah, God's on the winning side. Right? Have you ever seen in your life a time where you could conceptualize Russia and Iran and a bunch of other radical Muslim nations coming against the nation of Israel? You can't make this stuff up. You can't make this up, right? So we, those of us who eagerly wait for Him, He will, to those of us who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time. It could be any day. And we say that with anticipation. We say that with excitement. We say that by faith. We say that having, it motivates us to want to read the Bible and see, what, see how the story ends, Right? It does all of those things, right? And that's why He gave us His Word. So we can live apart from sin, right? We will, he will appear a second time apart from sin because we don't have to walk in sin. I don't have to worry about covering my sin anymore. Please understand how freeing that is. Do I still mess up and do stupid things? Back row. I do stupid things. Yeah, baby. Bring it on. I still mess up and do stupid things. And I want to keep marching in the right direction. But I'm not worried about covering my sin. I am not worried about covering my sin. I'm not worried about my reservation in heaven being vulnerable to my sin. Because my sin has been removed. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not worried about it, right? And so we need to walk in that, not with arrogance, but with thankfulness. And it's a great life. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you have removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And that you have chosen to not remember our sin. And so, Lord, help us to be relieved of the religious burden to try to keep covering up our sin, to try to keep sewing fig leaves together, to keep trying to be good, to keep trying to do the right things. But, Lord, help us just to appreciate You and enjoy a relationship with You through this long journey called life. Have Your way with us, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen. We're having an awesome, awesome week.